I'm Matthew. I'm one of the pastors here at H2O, and we're so glad that you're worshiping with us in the midst of the snowy weather outside. Um, have you guys ever had this moment in your life where you realized, like, what has happened to me? Like, what happened? How did I get here? How did I become like this? So I used to be someone who could stay out really late at night. You know, I, I feel like one of the reasons God called me into college ministry is because I, for a long stretch of my life, I could stay up really late, not sleep a lot, and, and I loved it. But something has happened like in the last couple of years where like that is not true anymore. So funny story real quick. Um, there was a point, Tiffany, my wife, was very pregnant with our second child, and we had a group of college students over to our house for a campfire. And uh, it was in the spring semester, and, and she was very pregnant, like really pregnant. And so um, she was inside sleeping or trying to sleep uncomfortably because she was very pregnant. And I'm outside and got this group of like 15, 20 college kids sitting around a fire. It's like 1130 at night. We're wrapping up our night of kind of Bible study and worship and fellowship. And, and of course, the only option at that point is to go to Taco Bell, right? And so I go inside and my wife is like, and I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm going to go to Taco Bell with, with, with these kids, with these college kids. I'm, mind you, I'm like, am I 30? I'm in my upper 20s, okay, pushing 30 at this point. And she says, I think I might be having contractions. And my response was, yeah, but if you're not really sure, you can just text me. <laughs> just just go, give me a call, shoot me a text, and, and I can come right back. And she just like looked at me. And that was it. I was like, screamed out the window, I'm done, I'm out, go home, go to Taco Bell without me. Um, now fast forward to today, and, and I have this thing every morning where we have this built-in cabinet in our bathroom, and, and, uh, and so as I'm changing for the day, I, I fold up my pajama pants really nice and neat, and I place them on this built-in shelf in, in this cabinet, and I have this little moment with my pajama pants where I'm like, I just can't wait to see you again. I cannot wait until we are reunited, preferably at like 7 p.m., and we just ride out the rest of the night together. And, uh, and it's literally, I am not exaggerating, I have this in intimate moment with my pajama pants every morning, which leads to the question, what has happened to me? Um, who have I become? And I tell that silly, the silly story because really kind of the question and what we're talking about today is who are we becoming? Stuff like that is going to continue to happen in your life. It's happening in my life. I think it's just because I'm getting older. Um, but on a spiritual level, who are we becoming? I'm usually a future-oriented person. I love dreaming about what's next. I'm like woefully committed to the idea that the grass is going to be greener on the other side. But for whatever reason, throughout 2020 and now into 2021, something has changed in me, and now all I want to do is look backwards. I'm not thinking about the future as much. It's like 2020 is not done with me yet. Maybe I'm a glutton for punishment. I don't know. But honestly, I sense the Lord is inviting me to sit with him, to continue to process the difficulties, the trials, the pain, the losses of this past year. And I know that even as I say that, that some of you are sitting here and you're just like, man, I'm done with 2020. Quit talking about 2020. I, I get it. It's fine if that's where you are. For me, though, I've sensed the Lord drawing me back, back to that place, that there's this 
unfinished work that he started in 2020 that he's going to continue to work on in this new year. I keep thinking of this quote from Dallas Willard, who is one of my heroes of the faith. He's a guy, he died recently, so he's a more recent um, sort of spiritual giant. And he wrote a bunch about spiritual formation. Basically what it means to not just know Jesus and believe the right things about Jesus, but to be formed and shaped into his image. And he had a way of just capturing this deeply mysterious process in words. And he would say, he would call what God is doing in our lives as renovating our hearts. Renovating our hearts to make them more like God's own. And over and over again in his writing and his teaching, he would say something like this. It's a quote from his book, The Divine Conspiracy. He says, the most important thing in your life is not what you do. It's not what you achieve. It's who you become. That is what you will take with you into eternity. The most important thing about your life is not what you do, but who you become. And so who are you becoming? Who am I becoming? That's the question that I cannot get out of my mind. It follows me into my devotional times. It follows me into my times of being in God's word. It follows me quietly as I sit at my desk just cranking out tasks. At the end of the day, when I'm looking back on my day and I'm assessing my heart and my actions and seeking God, how did I live today? It pops up again. And maybe it is because 40 is on the horizon for me. Lord have mercy. Midlife crisis. Here we go. Or maybe it's because as my kids get older, I start to realize that they are able to see my character and my lack of character. They can see my integrity and if I live the way that they hear me speak on this stage and I live with this fear that they will be part of an awful reality about pastor's kids. Or maybe it's because 2020 has just made me, and I I made this list on purpose after thinking about it for a good little while. Here's what 2020 did to me, moment of transparency and honesty here. It's made me more cynical, impatient, self-righteous, doubtful, and scared than I would even be comfortable admitting. But I think I just did actually admit. Okay, it didn't work in the first service either. Okay, Um, the best window that I can think of to answer the question, who am I becoming? The best window is how we respond to trials. There's just, there's nothing quite like it, right? How we respond to trials reveals who we are. The character of our inner life. Do we run away? Do we medicate? Do we pout? Do we abandon God? Or do we continue to faithfully walk with him, right? So trials do two things in our lives, and this is what Matt talked about last week when we opened the series in James. He said, number one, they, they reveal character. They have this way, right? Life is going great, we're fine, no big deal. Something difficult happens, and we have to respond in that moment. And it reveals the essence of our character. So it reveals character, but trials also create character. They forge maturity in us. Right, And so with that foundation laid, and I know you might roll your eyes again, and I'm going to ask you and plead with you to not just check out, but we are talking again today about trials. 2020, 
trials again. But that's where James is taking us, and we've got to follow him where he's leading us. We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. I want to start actually where James starts his chapter with a line that we camped out on last week. And I, I want us to just catch maybe just a little bit more, kind of grasp the audacity of what James says. Writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in James chapter 1, verse 13, he writes, that should say verse 3, sorry, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Consider it pure joy when you're, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Does the audacity of that hit you? That what's happening here in the Greek is not a suggestion, but a command. So we are being commanded to obey this challenge to consider trials joy. Joy as in like inner peace and contentment and wholeness. Not an emotion, but a state of being. That trials are supposed to, to, we're supposed to see them as joy, not just to endure them, but to cherish them. That is mind-boggling. We're supposed to celebrate, cherish, receive with gratitude the trials and the difficulties in our life. And I know that we're in a church, and I know that I'm a pastor, but I read this and I'm like, come on, stop. Nobody lives that way, right? can't actually obey that. That's a cool thing to quote and to say, but we're not actually going to be able to live that way. And to some extent, I understand that. That's kind of my gut reaction too. It's not actually true. And I think one of the reasons why it, it comes to us as like so impossible is because when we look at the options available to us, the reality is they do fall short, right? So knowledge isn't going to do it. The knowledge that this is how the world works, the knowledge of James 1.3 is not enough to make us people who consider trials joy. Wishful thinking, good vibes, not going to do it. Skills and tactics to respond, not a bad thing, not enough in themselves to do it. Memorizing a systematic theology book, which some of you strangely want to do, um, won't do it either. Something significantly deeper has to be happening at the level of our hearts, at the level of our soul and our inner being where character lives. And I think the question that James is, gonna, is asking in this and that he's going to answer for us is how do we become the kind of people whose faith endures? Not just like how do we get through this? What's the one-liner? What's the zinger? What's the skill? that I can get through hard things, but how do we become the kind of people with the character who can see trials as joy? So again, we're going to be in verses 12 to 18 with that question guiding us. I'm going to read through it, and then we'll go back, and we'll kind of dice it up and take it in sections. James 1, starting in verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, 
it gives birth to sin. And sin, when full grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So an amazing, beautiful passage packed full of a ton of meaning. There are three words in these seven verses that I think frame what James is trying to say and that are going to frame what we talk about today. And they're the words life, death, and birth. Life, death, death, and birth. He's going to describe to us what life is, what eternal life is. He's going to talk about death and what death is. And then he's going to remind us of the birth, the new birth that we have in Jesus. Massive words hit on massive themes and truths all throughout the Bible. Let's go back to verse 12 and let's start there. Blessed is the one who perseveres. Blessed is the one. The word blessed, much like the word joy, doesn't mean an emotion. It's not fleeting like that. It's this sense of inner wholeness, of peace. It's not an emotion. Emotions will come and go. Joy and being blessed don't for those who believe rightly. Pardee talked about that again last week. Who perseveres under trial because having stood the test. Now this is interesting because it seems like what James is doing here is he's talking about a, a trial or a test, but also temptation. He's going to get to that in a second. Trial, testing, temptation. They're all a part of this. We're going to sort of tease those out and explain what's happening there. That person, having stood the test, will receive the crown of life. Crown of life indicates royalty. It speaks of gladness and rejoicing. It's the prize at the end of the race, right? And most importantly, in Revelation 2.10, it's the symbol that those who have been faithful to Jesus, who belong to Jesus, will have their eternal reward. That we will live in resurrected bodies, in a new heaven, in a new earth, for all of eternity, we will see Jesus face to face. It's a vision of our future glory. And then he ends it by saying, to those who love him. And I don't want us to sleep on this part. This part is massively important. To those who love him. So who gets the crown? Who, who has this reality for all of eternity? Those who endure, but who endures? Those who Love him. Our endurance is linked to our love of God. Not our strength. Not our tactics. Not our knowledge. It's linked to our love of God. So how do we become the kind of people? This is the question. We're going to keep returning to it all morning. What kind, how do we become the kind of people whose faith endures? The first thing is that when we treasure God as our reward, when we treasure God as our reward, we can be the kind of people whose faith endures. When what we want more than anything is to know him, even, as it would say in the Psalms, if it comes in the furnace of affliction, even if, as Paul would say, it's when we share in the, the fellowship of his sufferings, right? If we want him, if we love him more than anything else, that's the kind of character that will cause us to see trials as joy. 
well, how do we want God like that? How do we get to a place where we want him more than anything else? I think we have to love him more than anything else when we love him. And I don't mean just like what he gives us. Those are good things. God blesses us, right? In the season of blessing, it can be sometimes really tempting and it sneaks up on us, but we end up loving what he gives us and not him. The gifts and not the giver. And this challenge, I think, embedded in this passage is, do you just love God for who he is? Are you enthralled? Are you enraptured by his beauty, his glory, his kindness, his grace? Remember that moment when the resurrected Jesus appears to Peter, who denied him three times, right? So Jesus is resurrected, he appears, he talks to Peter. Remember the question he asks Peter three times? Do you love me? Someone said it, someone got it right. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Why that question? Because that is the ball game. That's what it's all about. Do we love God? A commentator I read put it this way. Our progress to the crown is expedited like it happens, not by our powers of endurance, but by the depth and the reality and the pervasiveness of our love for him. We live by what we love. The shape of our lives is determined by the joys of our hearts. We live by what we love. We live into we live through and we live out of trials by the love of God. If we're going to become people, right, who endure, who refuse to abandon God when trials come, our hearts and our affections have to be captivated by him. And so the big lofty question, one that you can't possibly probably answer in this moment that I would encourage you to leave here and sit with is, do you love God more than anything else? Do you love him? Do you love him even when the trials come? Even when the blessings and the things that he, he gives you sometimes aren't coming in? Do you love him? Let's move on. Verses 13 to 16. Seems to take a turn. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, right? For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when fully grown, gives birth to death. And then he really drives it home. Verse 16 is connected to what came before. And he's really, it's like he's trying to grab his listeners by the ear. And he says, do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Don't be deceived by sin and evil and death. And at first, glass, at first glance, it's like, wait, that, why, why is he talking about temptation? He was just talking about trials, and most of the time, some of the time, at least trials, we don't have any control over. They just happen to us, right? And now he's talking about temptation, which we very much play a part in, right? We choose to act on those evil desires or not. doesn't seem like it makes sense. Why is James now talking about temptation to sin? And the answer is this. James knows something that we all ought to know too. With every trial comes temptation, with every trial, there is uniquely embedded in that an invitation to be tempted to turn away from God and to distrust God, right? It's a unique kind of temptation I think he's referencing here. That in our trials, when things get hard, we will be tempted to turn our backs. 
to medicate with something else, to run to something else or someone else, and we will not walk with God in the midst of them. And we know this is true, right? Financial struggle tempts us to distrust God's provision, right? We're struggling financially. God doesn't want to provide for me. God doesn't love me enough to provide for me. We experience the death of a loved one. I'm not trying to make light of that. That is a tragedy. It is awful. Jesus wept over the death of his friend. But in that moment, we're tempted to question and to doubt if God even loves us or loves that person. Or how about this? We're, we're trying to live a righteous life. We're in our word. We're, we're practicing the disciplines. We're praying. We're serving in the church. We're trying to live righteous, and then something bad happens to us. And what is our gut initial reaction, at least mine? God, you are not just. I question your justice. I question your mercy. I can't tell you how many moments sitting on our living room in 2020, Tiffany and I, full honesty, moment of pastoral vulnerability here, where we sat on our, in our, on our living room couch and we pondered, is God just being mean to us? It seems like God is really unkind right now. That's the temptation that James is talking about. And we make a decision in those moments, right? We either cling to God, even when it doesn't make sense, or we turn away from him. And so what do you do? Another question for you to ponder as you leave here, what do you do? Do you turn away from God in your pain? Or do you say with Peter, I'm going to reference Peter again, remember when a bunch of disciples were leaving Jesus, he gave a hard teaching, and Jesus looks to his, his inner core and he says, do you guys want to leave too? And Peter, for all of his shortcomings, he just really, he really got it here. He nailed it here. He said, no, to whom else will we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Is that what we do? That's the temptation that James is talking about here. And he wants us to know, if you walk away, if you distrust God and you turn your back, there's two points that he wants to make. Number one, that leads to death. It does not give life. The temptation itself is not sin. It has to be conceived, as the word James would say. So I'm going to let you off the hook, right? I don't want you to think that if you experience temptation that you're sinning. But when you, when you act on it, you give birth to it, now you're in sin. And all throughout the scriptures, beginning to end, tells the single story. Sin leads to death. It's point, its purpose is to kill us. It's deadly. It kills us. It doesn't give us life in this age, and it doesn't give life in the end for those who are unrepentant and never turn to God. So again, back to the big question. How do we become the kind of people whose faith endures? The second thing is that we have to recognize the deceit of sin. We have to know that this is happening on a spiritual level, Right? James uses this language of being lured and enticed. The imagery, right, is of fishing. You got the lure. You're rattling it. I'm a big topwater fan. I love bass fishing, um, and I only can fish in little ponds because I'm not good at it, and so I need, I need the, the pond where, like, the fish are just dying to bite at something. Otherwise, I'm terrible at it. And you just, I use that topwater and just kind of reel it in. I jerk it every now and then, and then the bass just jumps up. It's amazing. I love it. Anyway, that's the imagery that James is using here. And he's pleading with them, do not be deceived. We have to know that this is the reality surrounding us. The second thing, and I have to go quick on this, and I know some of you are probably really interested in this part, um, but 
I don't actually think it's the main part of what James is saying here, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. But the second thing he says is God is not trying to trip you up. He can't tempt us to sin. It would be so, so contrary to his very being and his essence that it's not what God is doing. He may test us, but when he tests us, it is so that we will prevail. And we who are in Christ Jesus have the Holy Spirit. We have the very power that raised Jesus from the dead in us, and we can prevail. So testing, yes. Tempting to sin as if he's evil and trying to just get us to catch us and then punish us, not his nature. Some of you may be thinking, why do I even like still struggle? Doesn't the Bible tell me that I'm a new creation? The old is gone, the new has come. I could spend an entire sermon on that, and I'm tempted to in this moment, but I don't have the time to do it. What I would tell you is that on a, in, a spiritual realm, in the spiritual realm, in the heavenlies, you belong to Jesus. That you are, you are justified. You're sanctified. If Jesus is the Lord of your life, you are new. The curse of sin has been re- removed from you, and no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. And yet we live in a broken, fallen world full of sin, full of temptation. We are not immune to it, right? This side of eternity, we will continue to be enticed by sin. But that does not mean that that we have to sin because we have the power of Jesus in us. Again, I could say a lot more on that. I'm going to leave it there for now. Verses 17 and 18 makes another turn. He says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like the shifting shadows. See what's happening? He's doing a contrast. So he's like, God will not tempt you. It is not in his nature. God would never do that. Here's what he will do, though. He will bless you. He will give you gifts. He will give you what you need in that moment of trial and temptation. He does not change. We are so prone to flip-flop. We are so prone right, to wander. And James is reminding us, God is not like that. And then verse 18, he chose to give us birth, new birth. He chose, just let those words sink in. Despite our wandering, despite our ongoing continual struggle with sin, despite the ways that we give in to that sin, he chose to give us new birth, new life. How do we become people whose faith endures? When we remember the beauty of the gospel. That God shows us that he does not change. He does not waver. That he has always loved us. That he has always been for us. That he became one of us, that he lived for us, that he died for us, that he rose victorious for us, that he chooses us, that he refuses to ever abandon us. And the staggering beauty and mystery of the gospel is that for those of us who are in Jesus Christ, something amazing is happening. The very life of Jesus Christ is being lived through you. You are dead And a new life is being lived through you. Whose life is that? It's the life of Jesus. It's this profound mystery. But that is what God is doing in us who call Jesus Lord. The way that Jesus lived, the character, the strength, the grace that Jesus had is made available to us. 
that even in our inconsistent, wandering, incomplete lives, his life is being made manifest for our joy and for the good of the world. Guys, don't miss this. The only reason that you and I can endure is because Jesus already did for us. It's our only hope. Remember right before Jesus went to the cross, he went to a place called Gethsemane. And there he he brought his friends with him and they weren't very faithful in those moments, right? And three times over he prays, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Father, not my will, but yours be done. In the moment of his greatest trial, Jesus endured. He was perfect in strength in that moment. He did not abandon the Father. He did not resist. He did not run away. Just like at the very beginning, when he was in the wilderness with Satan, he did not resist. He did not abandon God, right? Got up from that moment in Gethsemane, and he went with almost no words spoken to the cross, and he won our salvation until he returns to judge the living and the the dead and when his kingdom will have no end. And so as I close, I just want to say that whatever the trial is that you're in, I don't know, maybe there's one right now that you can't even see your way around. I pray, I pray that your heart would be captured by this vision of how to live, how to become the kind of people who can find joy who love God, who understand the deceit of sin, and who cling to the beauty of the gospel. Maybe you're here and you don't really have any trials, and the reality is I'm not trying to scare people away. I mentioned this this morning to a group of people, and it kind of freaked them out. That's not my intention, but there, there might be, you might even say it's probably pretty likely that there's a storm brewing somewhere out in the ocean that is coming for you, and one day you will face a really difficult trial. The reason that we teach on this now is so that you remember, so that it can go down deep inside of you so that you're prepared. It is so hard when the trial comes, and if you're there, you might relate to this right now in this moment, to receive something like this, because you're just so blinded by the pain and the confusion and the exhaustion. If you're here and there is no major trial, tuck this away. Go and be with the Lord and ask him those questions. Do I really love you? My fear in preaching a sermon about enduring faith is that we will think, I just gotta be stronger. I just gotta be, I gotta be braver. I gotta be tougher. I gotta be more impressive. I gotta read my Bible more. I gotta pray more. I gotta do more. And I would just say to that, Lord, have mercy if that is the way that we think. If it were to be about us, Lord, have mercy on us, right? It's it's actually a call to be weak. The call to endure is a call to be weak, to find strength not in ourselves, but in God. To take our confusion and exhaustion and sorrow to him and to receive what only he can give us and what he loves to give us, which is more of himself. So that's my prayer as we leave here that we would live by this vision, that we would become the kind of people who, as crazy as it sounds, can receive trials and difficulties and temptations as joy, as an opportunity to find deep, deep communion with, with God. So let's pray and ask God to do that for us. Lord Jesus, you, 
He told Paul in the face of his pain, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Lord, may we experience the grace of receiving your power as we humbly admit our great need for you. God, help us to love you. God, give us the faith. Give us what we need to desire you above all else. Lord, guard us from just loving the things that you give us and drive us deeper into just love for you and who you are. Lord, would you guard us from evil, protect us from the enemy who would seek to to steal, kill, and destroy. God, make us a church. Make us a people, men and women, whose faith endures, that we might know you more. God, not, not just even for our sake, but for the sake of this world, for the sake of our friends, for our families, for our children, for this city, for our campus, would we be people who persevere? Would that be a gift that we can hold out this dark and dying world. In Jesus' name I pray.